Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, how are things your way? Things are looking good, Preston. I hope that when this episode is published uh, next Monday that we will be sitting in a combine. Absolutely. Harvest is pretty early this year. We're recording mid-September. Hopefully that means we're also done early. Yeah, that'd be great. So we covered a wide variety of topics today with our guest, Megan Baskerville, including a lot of buffalo talk even. Jason, uh, do you want to give a quick overview of Megan's bio? Yeah, so Megan grew up on a farm uh, in Northeast Illinois, and she was in more of an urban area, so her school there, as she talks about, was a little bit urban. Uh, So she has kind of a unique perspective of, you know, she grew up with a lot of people who didn't necessarily understand farming. So that gave her an interest in communicating with those that are not necessarily from a farm background. So she currently is the Illinois Ag Program Director at the Nature Conservancy. And she works closely with farmers on issues related to water quality, soil health, climate change, wildlife habitat, and also air quality. Absolutely. And I think we had a great conversation with Megan. So uh, we'll jump into the podcast. But before we do, I just wanted to plug for all you listeners out there, be sure to like and subscribe our podcast. It helps us reach a larger, larger audience through the different podcast algorithms. So be sure to like and share this podcast. And with that, let's get right into the interview with Megan. Megan, welcome to the podcast. To kick things off here today, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your background? Sure. So again, my name is Megan Baskerville, and I grew up on a diversified farm in Will County. My parents raised cattle, corn, beans, hay, wheat, oats, you name it. Um, But in Will County, Illinois, we are just south of Chicago, and we really did grow up on that kind of edge of suburbia. So I felt like I had a really unique upbringing, kind of being the odd man out in a lot of my classes and in primary and high school years, being one of the few people that actually grew up on a farm and had that perspective. So I always kind of carried that with me and it always just stood out, um, noticing the differences in perspectives to classmates that had more urban backgrounds. And I've always been um, interested in understanding that intersection between agriculture, where you grow up, and kind of how you interact with your environment, and also just how those perspectives lead through to um, your culture, or again, your beliefs and values. So with that in mind, that kind of led me to my geography degree. I studied geography and environmental resources at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and I still tried to seek that out. So any opportunity to blend farming and a new culture and the environment, I always try to take it. So that led me to some fun places. I got to um, spend some time working on a coffee farm in Hawaii. So I got to see a little bit of that culture and how they interact with their land there. And then I took some time to do an AmeriCorps volunteer year out in Pennsylvania working with farmers there. So that was a really neat perspective on how kind of the Appalachian culture feeds into the agricultural system out there. We worked with a lot of um, both English and Amish dairy farmers and um, how they interacted with their waterway systems and their rivers, which was a really great learning curve coming from Illinois and having that be kind of foreign to me. But then I finally got an opportunity to, to come back to Illinois where I worked with a local soil and water conservation district in Macon County. 
So I spent a good five years there really doing one-on-one -on -one conservation planning with growers. And it was a great way to really dive into the details and pragmatic understanding of um, some conservation practices and how they get designed and implemented and managed really daily by that farmer and how to get them to work well for them, but then also provide those kind of co-benefits back to the environment. So um, I really enjoyed doing that. And when this opportunity came up with the Nature Conservancy, I first started doing pretty similar work in the Sangamon River watershed in central Illinois. And then the opportunity came up that I have today, which is to lead our ag program. So at the Nature Conservancy, our Illinois chapter ag program, I kind of direct what types of education and outreach we do with farmers and the ag supply chain. Again, just to advocate for as many environmental outcomes as we can um, in the ag sector. That's a, a really cool background. And we want to get into a little bit of, um, talk a little bit about the Nature Conservancy, but I just want to kind of comment on your background there. You know, one of the great things I think about agriculture, and you really illustrate that through your story of how you got to interact with different cultures, is uh, there's there's such a diversity of agriculture. If you look around the world, but even if you look within this country or even in, you know, within the state of Illinois, uh, there's a lot of different crops that are grown. They're grown a lot of different ways. There's really not a one-size-fits-all approach, and I think it sounds like you've worked with a lot of different approaches. Yeah, I'll tell you, um, my first time driving on a 12% slope in Hawaii, <laughs> it felt a lot different than the other times I was on a tractor. <laughs> not not a whole lot of those here in Illinois, although there are some rolly no. parts of the state. So tell us about the Nature Conservancy for listeners that may not know quite as much about what they do, what the goals of the organization are, the size, the scope. Just give us some background on what that organization is. Sure. So the Nature Conservancy is a nonprofit organization, and our mission is to conserve the land and waters on which all life depends. We got our start in um, northeastern U.S. in around 1951. They primarily started with land protection, so land deals to preserve acres. And since then, we've played a part in protecting over 100 million acres globally. They've ex we've expanded to currently operate now today in 79 countries, and that includes having a state chapter in every state of the United States. Across the world, we have about 4,000 people on staff. About 400 of them are scientists with, you know, um, publishing research year in, day in and day out. And then on top of the staff, we also have 1 million members. So again, being a nonprofit organization, we are a membership organization as well. So 1 million private individuals support the mission as well. Um, here in central Illinois, people might be most closely familiar with the Nature Conservancy based on whichever preserve might be in their backyard. So um, anyone can check out preserves by going on to nature.org and kind of zooming in. Most of our preserves are open to the public with trails and um, informative um, maps and markers, whatever you need to explore those areas. But in Illinois particularly, people might be familiar with Emaquan, which is our 6,000-acre floodplain restoration near Havana, Illinois. It um, kind of restored acres along the Illinois River. And um, it's a huge migratory pathway for waterfowl. So the spring and the fall, 
you can go out there and see thousands and thousands of different birds utilizing that floodplain. Um, and then also we've got the Nachusa Prairie up in Dixon, Illinois. Now that's a 3,000 acre prairie restoration. And also what's unique about that is we've got about a hundred head bison herd. So that brings people out that are really interested in it. Um, and we consider the bison our workers. So, you know, they're the hooved animals that are doing their part in a prairie ecosystem, which is really cool to see. But that's kind of um, the nature conservancy again starting as land protection and then kind of zooming out to really get our mission to fruition about conserving the land and waters, not only for nature, but for people too. Well, that's interesting. I wasn't aware. I, I know there's a few farmers maybe that raise buffalo in the state, but I wasn't aware that there were uh, buffalo in a, in a wild setting. Is that the only place in the state where they would be in a semi-wild setting like that? There might be more. Um, the only other one I know about is the Medewin National Tallgrass Prairie, kind of on the southwest side of Chicago. They're also, I guess they're, they are fenced in, but they're fenced in, you know, into like a thousand acre paddock. Um, but there too, they're really there for the restoration benefits that they bring to that prairie. Interesting. That is interesting. My neighbor, actually, I live in Illinois raises buffalo in the summer. Uh, his buffalo escaped. So it was kind of the talk of the town uh, around town as school buses were stopping for, for buffalo. So <laughs> uh, it's been an interesting year for, for buffalo. I was just going to comment. My wife always talks about growing up. Her dad actually raised buffalo for a while. And uh, like you said, they would get out sometimes and uh, she would have her job would be to go down the road and flag cars down and say, hey, there's a buffalo in the road while they're trying to get them back in. And people would give her crazy looks. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, yeah, Megan, I appreciate the background on the organization. I had no idea it was that large. I mean, eight, almost 80 countries, 100 million acres. I think you said 4,000 staff. Uh, it's pretty good size. I was kind of curious at how your organization ties into agriculture and maybe why, why, why do you guys get involved with production agriculture? Yeah. So it really comes about kind of in the evolution of our strategy. You know, we began primarily as a bucks and acres organization or really focused on the land that we ourselves could purchase to meet those worldwide goals of, clean water, biodiversity, and maintaining habitat for those um, animals. But it soon becomes clear that we're never going to see the outcomes that we really wanted just based on our own dollar and our own land purchases. So that really made the Nature Conservancy kind of rethink their strategy. And now we really do seek to engage and influence all sorts of partners to encourage practices on their own land that result in those wins that we're hoping to see for both nature and people. So that's kind of strategically why we understand that we just have to engage with agriculture, you know, being a big land use on the globe, um, if we wanna see our environmental outcomes come to fruition. And so more locally, again, kind of the Illinois landscape, um, working with agriculture is even more apparent given that about 75% of Illinois is devoted to agricultural lands. And so here we've been working with the ag community for over 20 years now, particularly in one watershed. We started in the Mackinac River watershed, which is a high quality stream with really diverse mussel species and fish species in central Illinois. 
and it still has a majority of its acres being in agriculture. So we wanted to research that and see what were those connections from the ag land to that river ecosystem. And then we are still working with them hand in hand today with farmers and researchers, particularly to better understand how to build pragmatic solutions to reduce nitrogen loss from tile drained fields. But that's really kind of like our on the ground work and then also our very strategic view of why we just understand it's critical to work with agriculture. So it's interesting to me that you mentioned the Mackinac River. The the river flows through my family's ground. Uh, it's a wooded area. So there would always be from time to time people down there doing research. And you mentioned the diversity of species. They would come down and, and take a sampling of the fish species that were in the river, you know, every couple of years. And so a scientist from the state would come out and uh, do what they do, shock the water and stun the fish or whatever they do. And he told us, you know, and I don't know if this is still accurate. This was 35, 40 years ago, but as a kid, it was really interesting to see this. And he told us that the Mackinac River actually had the highest diversity of fish species of any body of water in the state of Illinois. And I, I don't know if that's still accurate or not. You may not even have that information. I don't, so I don't want to speak out of turn, but I do know that's why it was highlighted or really zoomed in on from our TNC scientists' perspectives because they saw that diversity. Yeah, so it's interesting. And also, I think the Nature Conservancy is a little different maybe in some ways than some other conservation organizations. In just those things that you mentioned, maybe their willingness to work with all stakeholders, not just a kind of like we mentioned earlier, one size fits all approach. You said, you know, you can't just take the land and stockpile it and save it and um, not do anything else. It's kind of, a, you know, working with different partners. And I think that's respectable. When we talk about agriculture, what kind of areas would you point out where agriculture is doing a good job or improving um, with regards to protecting the environment and being sustainable? Sure. So in the U.S. and probably globally as well, I think would be remiss to not really step back and understand the innovation that happened in the last 50 years that have allowed um, ag inputs to increase so much to meet a rising demand while really limiting the amount of increased land that the agriculture is occurring on. This stat just came across my desk, so I want to kind of get it out verbatim, but from 1960 to 2005, ag outputs grew by 162% while only increasing their land base by 27%. So, I mean, we've all kind of stood back and in awe of that kind of innovation. And we know that that innovation came with lots of technology, but we do understand that that technology came with trade-offs, right? We increased fertilizer and pesticides and we saw some of the negative um, effects of that, but still um, maintaining that land base was really crucial, again, to leave space for wildlife and to leave space in natural areas. So that should be commended. And we understand that going forward, we want to push innovation still. We understand that food demand is only increasing, will ever be increasing. We're looking at in the next 30 years, that demand is going to increase another 50%. So I guess what we want to see is, as innovations continue, how can we have some purposeful innovations? How can we grow that output still? but with more ecological solutions that we have less and less trade-offs coming from that ag land and more and more co-benefits to the natural world. 
I think we'll be talking about soil health and some other practices later on, but those things are really encouraging because we are seeing that um, ability for ag to not only increase its output, but at the same time decrease its um, impact on the environment in a negative way and actually increase the positive benefits that it can have. So Megan, I thought that stat was really neat um, with the reduction in land use, but increase in overall food production. Was that stat a global stat or was that for strictly America? Yeah, um, our global director of food and um, fisheries shared that. So I want to say it's a global stat. Yep, by outputs up by 162% and land only up by 27 Fascinating. So now to kind of play the inverse of that, from your perspective, do you see any areas for improvement for farmers? Sure. So um, there's obviously all improvements that we can make in any of our industries. And I think the Nature Conservancy does a really good job of understanding that every sector has a part to play because we have some really audacious goals. I think with all the environmental stressors that we have, um, it seems like we're all under these really tight timelines to show massive improvements. So I guess to me, the biggest thing is the pace and scale of some of these ecological improvements that are occurring in the ag sector right now. Um, we've got some water quality based goals out of the Mississippi River Basin that are pointing to, you know, needing 45% reductions in nutrient runoff by 2035 and interim goals by 2025. And that just requires a massive amount of pace and scale of adoption that we're currently just not seeing based on some satellite imagery or um, agricultural surveys. We know in Illinois, cover crop adoption is right around 3%, but our scientists tell us we need at least 40 to 50% of row crops and cover crops to um, get those water quality outcomes. So our big question and um, kind of the solution that we're all going towards is what can we do to increase that scale and pace? What solutions do we need to put into farmers' hands to meet those really lofty goals? One good thing when talking about some of these ideas like this is that the technology is there in a lot of cases to manage some of these issues, right? So growers sometimes do split applications of nitrogen to help with runoff. And, and as you mentioned, cover crops, the bad news is the adoption is fairly low right now, but the good news is there's a lot of room to grow and we can really make some significant differences by more widespread adoption of these practices, it sounds like. Definitely. And I think what helps too is that we're understanding more day in day um, the co-benefits that the farmers see. So it, it makes sense for them to do them for their own agronomic reasons, let alone the environmental reasons. Yeah, that's a great point. In order for something to make sense in an operation, we're in a pretty tight commodity environment where prices aren't real high and input costs are high. And so as some of these things prove their value over time, maybe the growers that didn't want to jump on it the first year or the first five years or whatever are going to be a lot more willing to adopt some of these practices as they see the benefits on their neighbor's farms. Exactly. Yep. So how do we, and this is maybe too open-ended of, of a question, but how do we go about identifying these practices and identifying these things that can uh, make farms more sustainable and have 
uh, less impact on the environment at large? I'll match a high-level question with a high-level answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it really does go back to that idea of it seems like we're um, trying to mimic nature in the ag field, right? If we want to produce as sustainably as possible, what lessons do we have or what system should we, should we be recreating in the field itself? So I think when we look to how do we identify those improvements or how do we identify that expertise, it goes back to maybe widening the tent a little bit or understanding that we're going to have to take an interdisciplinary approach to really get at unique perspectives and unique solutions. So I really see hopefully over the next few years kind of expanding the tent and who's in on these conversations. Do we need to bring in more restoration ecologists? Do we need to bring in more microbiologists? Really kind of unlocking that knowledge that maybe currently isn't in the traditional ag space, but how do we um, bring those learnings and kind of have that diverse conversation? I think in all of our companies, we talk about the benefits of diversity, not only in the soil, but in um, our working environment and our culture. And I think that's true too for um, expertise and identifying improvement. So that's a good point to kind of build on that. You guys are really involved with, and, and Bear as well, the organization we work for, we're constantly researching how farmers can better protect some of these natural resources and reduce things like the hypoxia zone. Do you have any pointers or suggestions on how to share that information and disseminate it throughout the farming community? Yeah, so that's a tough one. So even just the research, you know, we have our very traditional extension and that kind of um, cultural system for getting information from academia to the ground. But like you said, all sorts of industries and NGOs are also popping up to try to spread that message and get it more quickly taken up by growers. And I think it is key when you look at who growers trust, um, it's key to influence those folks or those kind of pinch points that influence a lot of acres. So Nature Conservancy is working really hard to come alongside those trusted advisors like the retailer and like the seed salesman, just that we are learning together and that farmer can access that research or hear about it from the folks that they're already um, communicating with daily about their operation. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. There's voices out there. There's all kinds of voices out there. And there's some that the growers trust more than others, as as it should be, just like when we're talking about receiving news or any other thing, we kind of have to make decisions. And uh, it's important that those respected voices are the ones that are kind of explaining the benefits of some of these practices in, in order for adoption. I was just going to mention, I do think it is also interesting to think about just more broadly how ideas spread in any community. So I'm a big geek when it comes to diffusion of innovation theory, but there's lots of behavioral theories that people have about how any idea comes into a community. And it really gets back to there are different people in the world and there's different ways that people approach new technology or any new idea that comes up. Back in the 1960s, Everett Rogers developed this theory where he kind of lumped people into certain buckets. And it really, um, I guess, underlines the fact that nobody approaches new information or new technology with a purely logical mind. 
you always bring your whole self to that new idea. So you're bringing your own background, your own perspective, and your own beliefs. So it's not enough just to create new research and point to it and hope that people will logically um, ascertain the pros and cons and accept it if it makes sense. It's a lot messier than that. Um, but Rogers kind of noted that in the general population, only about 15% of a population are really innovators or early adopters where they have the characteristics that they're willing to experiment, they're willing to take risks, and they're kind of comfortable with the uncertainty that comes with new technology. They also have a characteristic to take a longer time to evaluate if something's working or not, and they're less concerned with kind of that social pressure. They're okay with being an outlier in their community. That is in contrast to the large majority of the population, about 60% are more like middle to late adopters, where just naturally they're going to be uncomfortable with something that bucks the status quo. And they're going to see the possibility of failure as a major risk. They take that failure not as a lesson learned, but kind of like as a stain on their reputation. And then also they think a lot about what the majority is doing. So they really want to make sure that they're in concert with their peers and going along with what their peers are doing so they're respected by them. And it's just kind of interesting to view the world in that context as new technologies in farming come along. It's important that we communicate the benefits of new technologies to those different groups in different ways that they're accepted more quickly. And I think that's the big trick is how do technologies kind of bridge that chasm between innovators and early adopters to the majority. And I think it's really important as we think about practices in soil health and conservation agriculture is that we have to understand that people bring those perspectives to that new technology. That's a fascinating concept. And um, I, I think we could almost do a whole episode on discussing this concept that you brought up of how, how people view te new technology and how they adopt it. And I think, you know, from, from our perspective, we see the issue of GMOs a lot of times and how people view that. And it's really not just about the science or the facts. Like you mentioned, there is so much emotion tied up in that debate. And then to compound that, you have people that uh, have a vested interest in, in inflaming emotions or, or appealing to people's fear of technology. And um, I guess there's a lot of money on all sides of the issue just kind of butting heads with each other. So it's a, it's a really interesting topic. And um, it's something if we had more time, I would love to explore that more in depth with you. Yeah, so, it's fascinating. It's definitely helped us build education to be more useful around these practices. Yeah. So Megan, we've talked to, talked about some different practices that farmers engage in. We've talked about some of the ways that growers do a good job of protecting the environment, some way, some places for improvement. We always like to, on these podcasts, as we get towards the end, we like to look to the future. So we like to talk to our guests about innovations that they see coming in the future, their view of where things are headed. So from your perspective, what do you see coming in the future when we talk about sustainability? Yeah, so back to that innovation, I think we're only going to get better and better um, realizing how agriculture can mimic or fit into the natural world, kind of bringing those principles into the field. 
So, you know, research and equipment modifications, that's all going to get better to um, make that easier on the farmer to kind of shift their practices. Kind of on the other side or the consumer and industry side, we are starting to see a shift from the supply chain to start to ask or understand the environmental outcomes from the products that they're purchasing. Previously, you know, the last 10 years or so, um, supply chain companies have been very interested in data or just understanding how the products that they're buying are grown. And I think we're starting to see that shift to um, outcomes or measuring outcomes. And I think that's really positive for growers because it shows that, you know, the industry or the consumers aren't really prescriptive in the types of practices they want to see. They're just really trying to elevate that demand for the outcomes or what's the environmental impact. So I do think that will open the door for or for continued flexibility and ingenuity on the grower side to kind of show those outcomes and show that they are, you know, cleaning up the water or not sending so many uh, negative trade-offs downstream. And then too, along with that, I do think our consumers will get more and more information to them so they can make a proper choice of a store or really vote with their dollar, understanding what sustainable is or understanding what types of products they should seek out. I think that's only going to get better and better, especially as you know, groups like TNC and other groups start to share their story and share the good story of the farmer doing such practices or um, working towards the, the same environmental outcomes that the consumer wants to see. Well, that's a very optimistic perspective, and I agree with all of your points there. We really appreciate, Megan, you taking the time to speak with us here today. Uh, before we do close, though, would you like to plug yourself or your organization, maybe like a Twitter handle or a website? Sure. So I'm a little bit off the grid, but you can follow TNC. Um, the, I think the Twitter handle is nature and and in particular for Illinois, it's nature underscore IL. And then also much of our ag work is done with the Illinois Sustainable Ag Partnership. So there folks can access our resources, trainings, webinars, all that good stuff. And that's at ilsustainableag.org. Perfect. Well, once again, we appreciate your time and it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you both. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.